Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is Liz, and I am joining you as usual from the ancestral lands of the Monica Nation in Central Virginia. I am so glad that you are with me. And if you want to know whose native lands you are residing on, you can check out native-land.ca. I've also been mentioning lately um, to check out the Coalition of Natives and Allies. This is a small group of Indigenous women and their white allies. One of my past podcast guests, Arla Patch, is a co-founder of this group. She's also uh, the incredible artist who designed my book cover. Um, but they have a lot of educational resources on their site. They've also recently produced a short film uh, that I had the privilege of seeing. It's really wonderful. And they're accepting applications right now for showing it in small group educational settings. So I'm going to put this information in the show notes. But all that's to say, if you want to learn more about the native lands that you're on, wherever you are in the world, you can check out that map. I think it covers the entire world. And if you're interested in learning more about the history here in the U.S., definitely check out the Coalition of Natives and Allies. Okay, I have a big announcement to make before we get to the show. I have recently launched the Home to Her Academy, and I am so very, very, very excited about this. This is a school, and the vision of this school is to bring together qualified, really engaging instructors who can teach about the sacred feminine, uh, and specifically in ways that are first rooted in the historical record. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that this is really important to me. Um, but can also bring in this embodied intuitive knowing. So inviting us to know with more than our minds. I really see that as a both and as opposed to an either or. I think we can have both. We don't have to choose between those things. Um, I want people who can help teach in a way that's intersectional. So really addressing head on these messy entanglements of spirituality, patriarchy, misogyny, racism, colonialism, et cetera. And then finally, teachings that are practical. So meaning that we can really apply this to our ordinary, complicated lives. So I'm super excited about this. I am teaching the first course, which is called Home to Her Story, Home to Your Story. This kicks off Sunday, September 10th. I've been working on this class in one way or the other for nearly five years. <laughs> um, and it is my spin on an introduction to the her story of the sacred feminine with an eye specifically towards understanding what this actually has to do with you and your life. So we will talk about the her, the her story in a way that I promise is not going to be boring. Uh, we will move and flow and practice feeling sacred feminine wisdom in our bodies in every class. And then my favorite part is the creative writing portion, which will invite us to practice spelling the world we want into being via storytelling exercises, um, which I have found to be super powerful in my own life. So this is a six-week live class that kicks off Sunday, September 10th, we meet Sunday afternoons, Eastern time. The classes will be recorded if you can't join them live. You can learn all about it at hometoheracademy.com. And you can also sign up for the newsletter so you can be notified of other classes as they're rolling out. Um, it's funny to have all this work in the back end and people not see it. I, you can't really see it there yet. You can see my class, but I have been working super hard behind the scenes. I'm talking to so many amazing individuals that are going to join me to teach future classes I am knee deep in planning a course around the divine feminine and mothering with an amazing instructor. I'm just going to have to leave you hanging on that way on that one until I can tell you more. But anyways, go check out hometoheracademy.com. And thank you for supporting my work. And while I'm speaking about you supporting my work, if you'd rather read about the sacred feminine, um, please consider checking out my book, Home to Her, Walking the Transformative Path of the Sacred Feminine from Womancraft Publishing. It is a 2023 Nautilus Gold Award recipient. Wahoo! And it's available wherever you buy your books. Um, but please do, if you want to buy it, consider buying it from Womancraft, which is an amazing woman-owned business, or order it from your local bookstore. Um, if you have read it and you liked it, your reviews on Amazon and Goodreads are super helpful. And same goes for the show. If you like it, I would be so grateful for your favorable reviews. Uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes are super helpful, but I'll take them anywhere. 
Uh, and I'm always grateful for your feedback too. I love it when you reach out to me via social media channels and just tell me what you think about episodes, give me your reflections. So please always feel free to do that. And I think that's all my announcements. So let's get down to business with why you're really here today. Oh, I will put all that in the show notes. There you go. All right. I'm so honored to know my guest today. She is a wise, witchy woman, a beautifully inspired writer. She's a fellow womancraft author. She's one of my co-presenters at the Parliament of the World Religions this year, which I think when this airs, we might actually be at. Um, and someone that I feel so privileged to call my sister and friend on this divinely inspired path. She is also the author of two of my favorite summer reads. I say two. She's She's got three in the series, but I've only read the first two. Um, I know we're going to talk about them. So let me go ahead and introduce her to you now. Gina Martin is a founding mother and high priestess of Triple Spiral of Dunashi, a pagan spiritual congregation in the Hudson Valley. She is a ritualist, teacher, healer, mother, and writer of sacred songs. Her When She Wakes series, which includes the titles Sisters of the Solstice Moon, Walking the Threads of Time, and She Is Here, are published by Womancraft Publishing. And she is the curator and composer of Woman Chanting, a compendium of sacred songs and chants. Her latest contribution is to women's sovereignty and body autonomy beyond Roe v. Wade, an anthology published by Girl God Books. She is currently enmeshed in a middle grade series entitled Daughters of the Goddess to be published soon. I'm very excited about this since I have a middle grade's child. Gina is a practitioner of classical Chinese medicine and a board certified licensed acupuncturist. She lives as a steward of the land that previously held a village of the Ramapo Lenape, where people can come together now to remember the old ways. She is kept company by her husband and dogs, as well as the she who live in the hills. Gina, I am so happy to have you here. So glad we're making this happen. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a great privilege. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Maybe we should start. For those that don't know, they're hearing the she and they're imagining S-H-E. You could explain who these who these beloved beings are. The she, the shining folk. She is a, an old Irish word. Uh, meaning those who live in the hills, the fairy folk, the shining ones, or the old ones, or the the fine folk, as they're sometimes called. And um, you know this, and probably most of your listeners know this, but this section of what we call mountains, but other people might call hills, were originally all part of one continent and connected to Ireland and the highlands of Scotland. So it's my firm belief that the same shining folk who live in the hills in Ireland have always been having their habitats here. And when we found, when my husband and I found this property, um, the name Dunashi just came. It just arrived. It's like they were waiting for me to hear it. That's what they've called themselves for a long, long time. So Dunashi means fort of the fairy folk or stronghold of the shining folk or however you want to think about it but I am surrounded by the hills of the Ramapo mountains and they live here and I want to place that in relation to my own Appalachian mountains is this the same chain or it similar? is okay. it's the same chain yeah. that's what I thought yeah all right so we've got yeah. the same I've got the same she folk down the road for me as well you do. then how you lovely do. How very lovely. I do think perhaps that's one of many reasons why this this land felt so um, familiar when I got mm -hmm. here. And also, sounds corny, but grounding. Very, there's just a very ancient sort of grounded, grounded feel to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's curious because at other times in my life, I've tried to live other places. I tried to live in California, loathed it. And I realized that I can't live west of the Appalachian Mountains. I just, I just can't. My cells need to resonate with these hills. So that's where I am. I love that. Well, as I think you know, Gina, because I think you've listened to the show before, that I, I do love to start with hearing people's spiritual background. I love mm -hmm. to hear where you began. 
how that differs perhaps from where you are now. What was useful, if anything, that you got growing up um, and perhaps yeah. how it pointed you towards or away where you where you ended up now? Sure. Um, I was raised a uh, Roman Catholic. My mother's family have been Catholics probably since the Romans brought Catholicism into Northern Europe. Um, and so as a cradle Catholic, and I'm old enough that I was pre-Vatican II in my early initiation, um, we went to mass every day. The mass was in Latin. The boys' choir sang. It was all the bells and whistles, incense, music, choreography, genuflection, you know, the whole nine yards. And what we know about brain science is that our limbic systems hardwire by the age of seven in terms of recognizing ritual. So I was clearly uh, entrained in that high church, high ritual kind of sensation. And I found that um, that's sort of my construct. That's the superstructure that I measure all other ritual against is sort of formalized ritual ceremony with choreography, with scent, with, with song. Um, and so that was true for me in my early childhood. My dad's family are Appalachian in descent uh, and not Catholic, which was a huge, huge scandal when my parents married. And so I've always had this split in my own identity between that high church Catholicism and my dad's people who were herbalists and Welsh witches and very much not of a church. Mm. Um, so that sort of split, that dichotomy was always present. As I moved into my teens, I discovered feminism and fe feminism, which resonated very powerfully for me, does not dovetail with the Roman Catholic church, in my opinion. Mm. And that conflict got bigger and bigger and bigger. When I moved to New York, I reached out to and found a number of Native American teachers and other kinds of diverse spiritualities. I tried chanting for a while until I fell over in giggles and couldn't keep it up. And um, But through it all, it became clear to me that there was a presence, um, an energy that felt like home. Speaking mm -hmm. of the name of your podcast, that felt like home. And so when my husband and I got married, my current path hadn't really formulated, but it was clear to me that I wanted a woman minister. And we found a fabulous woman minister in the Presbyterian church. We aren't Presbyterians, but you know, you find the girls where you can find the girls. <laughs> and uh, it also became really clear to me that within that ceremony, I could not use a God, the father language. And I wasn't sure why I was so convinced that that was true, but it was. So that really became, I think, the jumping off place for me in this current iteration of my spirituality, very goddess-centered, very focused on creating space where women are safe, where girls are safe. My current congregation, Triple Spiral of Dunashi, was specifically started so that girls could have a place to be in ceremony and ritual and learn the power of being female in the world and learn of the goddess. And then that morphed into, well, we have sons too. Well, okay, so let's create stuff for the boys to do. So we created equinox and solstice ceremonies where we would hike up one of the nearby mountains before dawn, because that's exciting for the boys to hike in the dark, right? Hike up to the peak of the mountain and watch the sunrise. Um, and we did that for a long time, for a decade. And then we started having fire feasts, Beltanes and Samhains, where we invited everybody. And so the congregation went from being a very small, select, female-only, moon-oriented goddess ritual to a much more expansive kind of group of humans looking to be able to resonate in the old ways. Um so that's the journey that I've gone on. And each time I ignore her, because I'm good at ignoring her voice in my body, 
um, you know, she comes back and smacks me upside the head with a cosmic two by four. And then I listen and then I make the necessary movements in the outside world to make space for her. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. the cosmic two by four. I always, and it, I think it depends on choose your metaphor, right? Maybe it's because I did spend so many years in California. I think of like getting the rug right yanked out from under me, you know, the earthquake, like I'm literally <laughs> like, I thought I was standing on solid ground. No, no, you're not. Yeah. No, you're not. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? How this force, this creative force, source, she, whatever you want to call it, how she's so present and so obvious and yet can remain so hidden to us. And then she keeps bumping into us and smacking us and yanking the rug out from under us until we listen. And so to me, it's curious how long it takes me to listen. I mean, I, you know, I think of myself as an open-minded, open-hearted seeker. Uh, and still, it will take years for me sometimes to get a message. Well, and I, oh, I, I don't want to jump ahead too fast. I have these questions for you, but let me we'll just go there because this is what I'm thinking of as you're saying that's Well, you know what? Let me let me go back really quick. I'm going to make a note so I don't lose that thought. Can you explain to listeners Vatican II for people who are not raised in the Catholic faith? I, I'm not sure I know what that is. So okay, Vatican II was a convocation of bishops and scholars that happened in the early 1960s. So I am talking antediluvian times here from many people. And um, the point of Vatican II was to find a way to make the church more accessible, more approachable. So, you know, the, the Catholic church hadn't really changed much in let's say 1200 years up until this point, minor shifts, but you know, at, at a glacial pace, changes happened in the church. But Vatican II was radical. So what happened literally overnight for me in my education, in all the way through the second grade, everything was as it had been. Latin mass, the priest faced away from us. It was all very, um, we were observers. The priest was the officiant, was the connector to the divine. And it was only through that, that you had access to the divine in a language that none of us understood mm -hmm. in a magical language that none of us understood. And with Vatican II, what suddenly happened and it felt to me, talk about an earthquake. It felt tumultuous in that suddenly overnight, the priest flipped around and faced the congregation. This was huge. The mass was in English or in any native language around the world. Suddenly the mass was in a language of the people who lived there. Um, and that made such an, a degree of access to ceremony and ritual that hadn't been present before. And with it came all sorts of social activism ideas and, you know, opening things up and, um, and the boys choir was gone and we still didn't have girl servers at the altar. They were still altar boys, but, mm -hmm. you know, there was suddenly a feeling of shift change possibility. So many people hated it absolutely loathed that change because they were so um, held securely by the ritual that they'd grown up with that limbic system thing again you know some people were really excited by the shift it felt very much a part of the 1960s the mid-60s the rise of the feminist movement the anti-war movement the the civil rights movement you know all it was all part of that things are going to get different and yeah, I'm picturing in my head, like street priests and nuns, like with their guitars, the guitar mass became a thing <laughs> Okay. instead of the organ and the boys choir, it was the guitar mass, you know, it was like, bring it to the people, man. And, uh, consequently simultaneously, a huge number of priests and nuns left mm -hmm. the church, left their devotions, their, their vocations, um, because it shook everything open. And so once the doors were blown open, people went, oh, you mean I can walk out of the door? And that was true. Uh, and little things that made a huge difference, like Sunday mass, which was obligatory, of course. You could start going on Saturday nights. There was a loosey-goosey feeling to this. You should show up Saturday night and then go to a football game and you would have fulfilled your Sunday obligation. Um, so the, the loosening of the boundaries around everybody 
I thought was really healthy. But of course, with any sort of shift and change, there's backlash, right? Yeah. And I think what we've seen in the last 30 years in the Roman Catholic Church is that backlash, is that return to conservatism and dogma and mm. um, and an absence of clergy. I mean, there's so many churches that don't even have a priest yeah. because vocations have fallen way off. Nuns, they're all 80 years old. You know, yeah. it's like there's none of that influx into what seemed so solid, which was the structure of the church. Interesting. So that was Vatican II. It was a huge bomb in all of our lives and and bombs are equally you know creative and destructive Mm -hmm. thank you that's that's helpful for this non-catholic and i would imagine other (laughs) non-catholics listening as well (laughs) Um, well and i think that you already named this or well you sort of did but i'm wondering if was there a specific do you feel like your understanding of divine feminine you mentioned that you knew you couldn't have a god the father language but do you feel like that awakening to divine feminine and if that's not your language you know use your own words there but um was it gradual was that like a bomb in your life like how did how did that show up for you well it's really uh interesting you know I think she was always present for me. Um, When I was little, I had imaginary friends, as many of us do. My imaginary friends was a tribe of warrior girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was not anything that I saw in the culture around me. Remember, this is the late 50s, early 60s. There was no such thing as an empowered warrior woman. There was no Mm -hmm. Xeno warrior princess yet. But my imaginary friends were warrior girls. And I think this was a way of the, of the divine feminine giving me support and comfort at a time when that was the only way I could hear it. Um, I think that my awareness of goddess, if you want to think of it that way, was much more gradual and feminism clearly fueled that, the the sense that, whoa, all this power has been taken away, has been suppressed. And what what floats that power? But I wouldn't have called it goddess, certainly, in high school or in college. Um, it was much later as I began to explore other kinds of spirituality, Native American spirituality and Buddhism and things like that, that I became more aware of it. And still the language felt awkward to me. Goddess felt really awkward, felt like I should say it quietly and look over my shoulder to make sure that nobody was listening. So coming into that, stepping into owning that has been inch by inch, painful inch by inch. And and one of the most um, profound instances for me is I had started with a, with a couple of other women had started Triple Spiral of Donashi in the year 2000 um, on this land here. And I had been ordained by a, a woman who considered herself a priestess of the goddess and was also a Presbyterian minister. And we called her our mole in the patriarchy. She was <laughs> in the first graduating class that ordained women at Union Theological Seminary. Wow. So a real, uh, a real glass ceiling crasher, my friend Lee Hancock. So I had achieved this and I had this congregation and then 9-11 happened. And suddenly, you know, people were searching for comfort and solace and, and spiritual direction. And in one of the local river towns in Nyack, they were holding a multi-faith memorial at the big park at town by the river. And a friend of mine was on the committee and she was asked, are there any pagans? And she said, I know a pagan. And so I was invited to come and be one of the many clergy people who presented ourselves as holding space for this memorial and I remember standing there shivering so hard that you could probably see me from a distance shivering because I was going to stand up in front of the town in front of a lot of people I knew and say I was a priestess of the goddess I'd never said that outside of the safety of my grove I'd never said it aloud and I was so terrified absolutely terrified and of course there's generational trauma being piled on at that moment but it felt important for her to have a voice in this event and I was I was her um, mechanism to be that voice Mm 
And I remember a friend of mine was sitting with other friends and I had stood up and said my name and that I was a priestess of the goddess. And I was, I was there for those who loved the goddess on that night. And this mutual friend had turned around and he said, well, I love Gina, but what did she just say? And so it was one of those moments of, you know, I came out of the broom closet in a, in a really, really public way. I was terrified. So each step of the way has been, you know, she has to drag me out. I, I consider myself in service to the divine feminine and still she needs to drag me out. So, you know, we're overcoming generation after generation after generation of repression of her and trauma around her and fear about survival. It's all there. I get to live it all. Oh, all of that resonates with me. I'm just grateful to hear that because I feel that too. And it's, um, I don't know, Gina, if it's gotten easier, if it feels a little easier somatically and from your, your nervous system to sort of, um, navigate and, and regulate back to, I think for me, each time I've stepped out, um, it's gotten a little bit easier. There's a sense of, there's such a sense of purpose, uh, to Mm -hmm. me in service that, that, each time I kind of bump up against that, that wall of fear or whatever, and I figure out how to move through it, the service piece and the purpose piece gets louder. And it, it sort of feels like the hand at my back that gets a little bit stronger. Or then I realize that the hand is in my back and I'm carrying myself forward too. I don't really know, you know, the right metaphor for that, but I wonder if it's gotten a little bit easier for you over time or, or easier to bounce back from the, the fear or. It has gotten a lot easier. Every single step. We had been in congregation for about 10 years. Well, let me let me back up. We'd been in congregation for about seven years when I started getting the message that we should incorporate as a 501c3. It took me three years, again, the cosmic two by four, smacking upside the head <laughs> for me to actually bring that forth to the circle and say, I really think we need to do this. And they would say, why? And I said, I don't know. I just know she wants us to. And because the women who formed the circle with me trusted me, they said, okay. But there was a lot of fear around that because that meant not only all the paperwork, which is ginormous, to uh, get yourself listed with the feds as a congregation, as a church, as a 501c3. But there was also the fear of stating to the world that that's who we were. And there was so much fear and so many women in the circle amplified it out and then pulled it back in and we all felt it like do we want to take this very official step to claim that that's who we are and I don't know what it's like in other states but New York makes it pretty simple New York being the place where there are all sorts of weird things got started spiritually like the Mormons and stuff you know there's a huge history in New York state of odd ducks claiming themselves to be churches so we had that to ride on in New York, you only need 30 people who say that they're part of a congregation for it to be legal to be a congregation in the state of New York. So we had that at our back and we went through all the paperwork. And, and I remember one of the women who was helping us saying, oh, we shouldn't say we're a church. We shouldn't say we're a church. I said, why not? That's what we are. We're a spiritual congregation. We shouldn't say that they'll look at us. I went, well, so, I mean, we're not doing anything wrong and that's who we are. She wanted us to claim ourselves as a charity because it felt safer. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, the hand at my back said, no, say who you are, be true. And so we claimed ourselves as a congregation and our approvals of 501c3 sailed through. They never even asked a second question. So about two years later, when the property across the road from me was going to put up a 120 foot cell tower, which would have loomed over our grove, I was able to go to the local planning board and stand up there and say, I'm a clergy member of a 501c3 recognized, federally recognized congregation. Mm -hmm. And if you do this, it ruins our spiritual space. Wow. And it didn't happen. The Mm -hmm. lawyers for the opposition came up and told me ours was the strongest argument. I mean, there were people there who were saying, well, there are endangered species and, you know, Rochambeau and walked through here in 1776. And there were historical and ecological reasons, but our sanctity of spiritual space was actually the strongest one. 
And so that felt empowering. I was like, wow, that's why we did this. That's why we needed the 501c3 status so that I could defend the land in that way. Wow. So every step gets a little bit easier. Yeah. A little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting too. Hmm. Just about, that's a tangent that we won't run down because that's maybe for a different conversation, but it's really interesting that that, that, um, you know, separation of church and state be damned, you know, like religion, religious um, priorities mean something here. Well, we already know that, but how lovely that um, in this case, your spiritual tradition was honored in the same way that, you know, let's say a Christian churches would be, we don't, I don't think we see that that often. That's pretty great. Well, I live in an area that is becoming increasingly almost solely Orthodox Jew. And so it's a combination of modern orthodoxy and Hasidim. So like every third house is a shul or a shiva. So this was a planning board that was well-versed in, oh no, you claim it a sacred space. It's sacred space. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, you know, alone in the desert. I did have local precedent, but nobody else in the entire county had claimed themselves as a pagan congregation. So you know, that was breaking some new ground, but they could hear me and mm-hmm. honored that. And it was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think I wrote down a couple notes as you've been talking, because I, I really do want to talk about your books um, and some questions that I have for you, you know, just about your own life and how this has played out in the books. But but maybe you can tell us a little bit about this series, this um, that you've created, the When She, when she Wakes. When She Wakes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like the the inspiration behind it and what you were hoping to achieve in writing it. Um, it's curious because I never thought of myself as an author. Mm. It was never a, a lifelong ambition. Um, I've been a professor and a teacher and a, and a, a ritualist for a long time. And so I'm a storyteller. I create environments for people to learn in that maybe not just simply linear thought but I never thought of myself as an author I've written a lot of sacred songs but that felt different that was for ceremony that was for ritual I got this idea of 13 women receiving the same vision on the same night about the impending shift from matriarchy to patriarchy and that they needed to make some kind of magic together to preserve goddess wisdoms And I got this idea and sat on it for five years. Again, the cosmic two by four, Liz. You know, (laughs) I got the idea. I'm like, I'm too busy. I don't have time. I'm not the person, blah, blah, blah. And I have since found out that several other women that I really admire had received similar ideas at about the same time. So I feel like the goddess was throwing out seeds. And one of us finally had the time to put our butt in a chair and write the book. And it happened to be me. Um, But once I started writing this and I needed a writing group, I found a writing group and a good mentor locally. And then I finally felt like I have absolutely no excuse to not write this book. I have a mentor, I have a writing group. What am I doing? I sat down and started writing and then it, it started gushing out the, the flow of information just felt like somebody opened a spigot and it started rushing out. So I feel like I was uh, in, in a group of people who were you know, selected to be a potential channel for these stories. And I just happened to be the one that opened the spigot mm-hmm. at a given time. So that's where the inspiration came from. I was actually at a women's spirituality festival sitting by sacred fire and the idea landed and wouldn't go away. So this makes me think of big magic. Have you read that book um, by Elizabeth Gilbert? Um, And she says something similar about ideas. I also makes me think of an interview I listened to with Roseanne uh, Cash, Johnny Cash's daughter about songs. And in both cases, they refer to this idea of like the, the magic I'm, you know, motioning over my head now for listeners of, that it's out there and that we are recipients, you know, or channels for certain pieces. Mm-hmm. And we might not be the only one that received that. And so part of it is discerning, is this mine or is this yeah. someone else's to do? Just because I received it doesn't mean I need to bring it into fruition. 
uh, Elizabeth Gilbert has a wonderful story in her book, Big Magic, about getting this idea for a novel that she ultimately didn't follow through. And then I forget who the novelist is, someone really famous that you would know if I mentioned it, who had the exact same idea, more or less, went on to write it, became a best-selling novel. So there you go. There you Uh, go. And they got together and laughed about it. And, And Roseanne Cash talks about how sometimes she would she would feel that there's these song ideas out there floating around and she, you know, if she was so nervous, if she didn't grab it, that Lucinda Williams or some other incredible singer songwriter was going to get it and do it instead of her. Yeah. Yeah. It is that feeling like in the, in the cosmic mind, there are things that need to be brought down onto this plane that need to be heard. And that, you know, there, the cosmic mind is sort of searching around looking for who's actually going to listen and do the thing because you can hear the message but then you have to do the thing and the doing of the thing is not easy especially in very busy lives yeah you know to find the time to do it is is not an easy thing to ask so yes it was fascinating to me after I had published Sisters of the Solstice Moon. I think the second book was out too when I had this conversation with a couple of other women who said, oh yeah, about seven years ago, I went right right around the same time. I had this idea. It's kind of similar to the 13 women and the same idea. I went, yeah. Well, I mean, we all got it. Mm. It's just uh, who was going to be the the channel that would actually sit down and, and put keys on keyboard. I mean, fingers on keyboard. Yeah. So, well, and one of the things that's coming up for me right now too and this relates back to your cosmic two by four you know how long does it take for you to do something um is it going to take five years or there's a whole story especially in the second book of lifetimes people Mm -hmm. finding each other and losing each other over lifetimes um 13 women trying to to find themselves in lifetime after or find each other after lifetime after lifetime and so Mm -hmm. i was thinking about the cosmic two by four um you know, also hitting us upside the head, perhaps lifetime after lifetime. It's not just even, <laughs> what if it doesn't take five years? What if you, what if she's actually been hitting you with that for five lifetimes? And just now you're like, oh, I feel the familiarity of this whack upside the head. I think I get it this time. But I'm curious if you, you know, this concept of time as it relates to the divine mm. feminine and your understanding and you're playing with that in the book and also your your exploration of that in your own life. And I, even your mention of the band of warrior girls, I'm like, well, they're in your book, <laughs> you know, they are. Um, yeah, yeah, they are. They, yeah. they finally uh, got their time on in the spotlight. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That the whole not concept of incarnation, reincarnation, time, string theory, you know, all of this stuff, which is, is really beyond my mental capacity. I I'm I have a puny human brain. And so the notions of time and I'm not buying that, Gina. I'm sorry. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna override you on that one, but go ahead. <laughs> well compared to the cosmic mind, my human mind is puny. Fair. I'll Fair. take that. Um and so the concept of multiverse, but also of reincarnational connection and uh, soul groups and soul journeys and how that weaves together and how sometimes you connect and sometimes you just pass each other in the night and sometimes um, I mean I, I'm sure that everybody listening has felt this but for me one of the one of the recurrent themes and this comes back to my warrior girls is the the loving and the needing and the belonging to something and then having it be gone. Mm. Um, Because I consciously sent my warrior girls away. I did it with purpose. I had started kindergarten and I was talking to them and people were laughing at me and thinking I was crazy. And one day I made the conscious decision and I said, if I'm going to stay in this world, you have to leave. And I walked them to the corner of my block and I said goodbye. Hmm. And they walked off into the mist. Hmm. And I sobbed for about three hours. Hmm. So that theme of belonging and having access to spirits or souls or beloveds, however you want to call it, and then the missing of them the grieving of that loss or the absence has been really a very prominent theme in my life. 
I think it may be this this lifetime's karmic lesson. Can you say goodbye without crying? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't found a way to do that yet. Um, and so in book two, in Walking the Threads of Time, it was so much fun to toss around the ideas of people finding each other. And maybe they remember that they knew each other before, but maybe they don't. They just know that it feels good to be together, that it feels right to be together. And maybe they know they're missing something and they're looking for it their whole life and they don't find it. That's also a truth that feels really powerful to me. So I got a chance in that book to play with that, to really give those characters, the 13, give them an opportunity to loop through time and space. Also gave me a chance to, you know, play with the idea that there are no new ideas and that those enlightened souls that show up, like Lao Tzu, like Hildegard of Bingen, that that they're bringing wisdom from before and they just get the opportunity to share it this time. Mm -hmm. That makes, that makes me happy. In the way that I loved that part two of the second book and also the way in which it would have expressed itself for that time. I think there's a way now in which we can look backwards and I'll just say me, you know, when I started questioning everything, you know, you can look backwards and judge, right? Or say like, wow, I can't find any female, you know, like any women in the past who were doing anything that relates to me now. Or if I do, it's so wrapped up in language of like Father God that I can't stomach it. Mm -hmm. Even though I kept going back to that, like that was my first, it wasn't my first, it was one of many knock, knock, on the side of the head, you know, moments where the divine feminine was trying to get my attention in my early twenties, it took the form of a, a short obsession with being a nun, even though I wasn't down with Jesus, but whatever, I wanted a life of spiritual devotion and, you know, reading stories of Christian mystics. Mm -hmm. And really that was all I could find, you know, yeah. for, for spiritual women. I couldn't, yeah. that was it. So I was going where I could, and I would get frustrated with it because it was just so, so father Godish. but I think you know, what your book did, it sort of helped me think about like these spiritual concepts, how they would have presented at the time in the way that they could for that particular era right. and in a way that in which these women could have survived. Yes. Or yes. even even articulated given, and you get into this in the book, what you can and can't remember from a prior life, but assuming most of us don't get to carry full full threads through multiple lives you know, what you can understand in the yeah. life that you're in. Well, because language creates the mental construct, mm -hmm. right? So the language that you speak creates the world that you see and perceive. And if the language that you speak does not include any notion of a divine feminine creative force, you feel something, but the only way, the only vocabulary you have to express it is deeply patriarchal because that's where you're living. I mean, that's why I think Joan of Arc is so fascinating to me because clearly she was, you know, she was on a divine mission and she had these saints that were present in her life all the time. Uh, who the hell were they, right? That's pretty mm -hmm. cool. Um, or Hildegard. I mean, Hildegard is such a fascinating character because this was a woman that none of her work should have survived. Mm -hmm. because of the time she lived in she should never have been given authority over two monastery convents uh, not under the auspices of a bishop and she was her work should never have been allowed to be published by the pope but they were she should never have been allowed to go on speaking tours women weren't even supposed to speak in public she was granted speaking tours throughout Europe. She corresponded with Eleanor of Aquitaine. She was, you know, she was an awesome, badass bitch. And she should never have been allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. So how come she did? Because she did use the language of the time. She did tweak it to include her understanding of life force and creativity. But, you know, if you look at her stuff, it's pretty father gaudy because it had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, but still, you know, look at what she accomplished and look at what still survives, which is what's astonishing. Yeah. Well, and I think, so 
What I'm also wanting to ask you is the line between fiction and reality and, you know, is there, is this fiction? Is this fully fiction? And I, I know, you know, we, we've, I always ask guests a little bit like what, what would they like to cover? But I, I was so glad that you were interested in talking about this because there were moments that I had reading your book where there were things that felt familiar. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I included a brief mention about this in my own book. I was in ceremony once and um, looking across at another sister in the ceremony and it was like something clicked and um, I, we were somewhere else and we had done this exact same thing. And I can't tell you if it was future or past, I have no idea, but I knew her and she knew me and none of this was new to us. And, mm -hmm. and then it was just poof, yeah. gone. And so that came up, you know, when I'm reading your book. And so I'm curious for you, are you in this book? And, you know, like what, how, what is that line between fiction and reality? How do you, how do you? see that I, I don't think there's any difference mm. I, I mean I, I've thought about this a lot because every time I've finished one of these books and sent it to our joint publisher to Lucy she always asks me the same question is this real and I always say sure why not <laughs> I mean it's that why not question because if we think about it what is nonfiction? Nonfiction is someone or some schools of people's perspective on events. We all know that history written by the victors is really so much not the whole truth. Um, and so is there anything, any difference between nonfiction and fiction? Is there any difference really between the stories that are metaphorical and the stories that are so pragmatic? Mm. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's the choice of vocabulary. I don't, I write books that feel true to me. Um, did Hildegard von Bingen have a, a, a tempestuous love affair and a child? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Um, just because it didn't make it into some history book doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm. Um, was, and we all know that, you know, Lao Tzu uh, was supposedly taught by the grandmothers. Why not have them be the real carriers of wisdom and he just got to write stuff down? You know, I mean, there's, all of this is, I love the what ifs. The what if this is true? What mm -hmm. if this really happened? You know, every time an, ar an archaeologist discovers another layer of prehistory that they thought didn't ever exist, we all go, whoa, our understanding of what the world has been is completely different. So many civilizations have risen and fallen. So much truth has come and gone. So many wisdoms have been lost and perhaps recovered. So why not? I I write what is called speculative history, mm. which is about the what ifs. What if this mm. is true? Maybe it is true. Mm. Who's to say it isn't? Mm -hmm. Some Roman historian who had a very clear agenda. I mean, I find that hard to fathom. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about memory too, and even how memory shifts and changes like that, that moment that I told you about, I remember it. I remember it and I've also thought about it many times since mm -hmm. and each time we think about it and we tell it like does it, it solidifies itself in a different way in the body and it's it's almost impossible to get back to what did I feel in that exact moment um, and also experiences which are shared or even solely experienced like you know it used to be that eyewitness testimony in court was such a great thing now they know that it's hokum you know that mm -hmm. It means very, very little. What yeah. we experience and then what we bring back are very often wildly different. Or you talk to siblings in the same family yes. about an event and they all have a very different recall and, and lived experience of what that was. So again, memory is fungible, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> memory is ephemeral. And since most of nonfiction or history is somebody's memories, yes. can we trust any of it? I don't know. Mm. And how does that make you feel? Because that could either be really like, oh, shit, this is incredibly disorienting. And in a different way, I think with a different lensing, it can feel comforting. Um, big, I find all it, thing, all yeah. things are possible, you know? I find it liberating um, because I, as 
as I've gone through my life and so much has shifted in terms of, you know, say the perspective about what we did to Native Americans in this country, right? You know, when I was a little kid, Manifest Destiny, that was a glorious thing. And certainly what I have learned about other people's truths has shifted 180 degrees from that. I find that liberating. I find that uh, exciting that the world is potentially much different than I had ever thought it was. Because mm-hmm. yeah, anything's possible. Mm-hmm. And hopefully then, because I am, I am a pathological optimist, hopefully that means things can be improved, can be made better. Because the constructs of thought and dogma and religiosity and belief and patriotism, that those dogmas, those constructs are illusions and we can break free of them. Mm -hmm. Do you think, um, did you see yourself in any of the characters in the book? I mean, you mentioned the warrior girls. And so I immediately thought of the, there's, there's a character in the book. Is it, is it Io? Am I saying her name right? I know you've got the pronunciation guide. Io. 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 Thank you. I have it in front of me. Io. Um, who is a part of a band of warrior girls she is, who she run is. wild in the woods and they're devotees of Artemis. Um, but do, did you see yourself in particular in any of the characters in the book? And were there memories or anything? Uh, memories, now that we talked about the, the <laughs> right. slipperiness of memories, anything that came to you as you were writing? I think, um, and people have asked me this before, and I think, do I have favorite characters? Yes. Do I see myself in any of the characters? Yes, in all of them. I think there's some aspect of me in every one of these. Um, And I would be deliciously involved in somebody's world um, and find something that really resonated true to me and slide that in there. And yeah, EO and her band of warrior girls loved them, loved the wild hunt, loved racing through the woods with them. there is a character in book three, which you haven't read yet, which I think is probably an idealized me or a me that I would like to think I could be. And I'll let you read it. And then you can tell me later if you think you know who it is. Um, but yeah, there is an aspect of me in all of these, in all of these powerful, empowered women. Um, and, and their lives, of course, were very, very different because they grew up in a time when empowered women was the norm. Mm-hmm. So it was fun to explore that, to see what would it be like to have been a woman in that time and not have any constraints mm-hmm. on your choices, your liberties, your potential. Mm-hmm. What would that have been like? What would it be like to have grown up in a time when women were considered divine? Mm-hmm. What would that feel like? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, and I think this is an interesting or a good segue into thinking about fiction, you know, and its ability to um, support, enact paradigm shift and paradigm change. And I wonder if you could speak to that. I certainly think this is very timely considering I feel like everything I see online is blowing up about Barbie um, and, you know, just the (laughs) the impact that this is having on people. And granted, I, I hang out with and follow certain people, so it might not be having the same impact on everybody, but it seems to be a, a, affecting that and i i wonder if you could speak to um fiction and stories whether it's movies or books as as ways to to push forward change that maybe our facts and reason and logic can't or don't i think that's the only way to paradigm shift um i mean we are a species of storytellers and story listeners if you think about you know early clans, tribes, hunter-gatherers, you know, the gathering around the fire, the sharing of histories through stories, the retelling of the hunt, you know, all of that. We're very um, attuned to story as, as a pathway to something, whether it's a pathway to an altered state through ritual or a pathway to knowing who you are and what people you come from and having your history in your body or whatever story is that. And I think that um, certainly in my life, there have been some paradigm shifters. I mean, I come from a generation of women who read the mists of Avalon and had the top of our heads blown off because this was true, possible, maybe even 
Although I, mean, I have to say it really shattered me when I heard all the accusations against her. I have not been able to pick up that book since. I'm I sorry. Know. I just have to say that it's, and I understand like uh, that's a very totally. complicated thing. Very complicated. I had a yeah. similar reaction and then I, and I have not, I, yeah, I've not known what to well, do. Well, I have had hard story. times with that. I mean, I read it when it first came out, yeah. which was, you know, decades and decades ago and it did blow the top of my head off. Yeah. And then later after, the revelations about her and her life came out. I tried to read it again and I couldn't. Yeah. And I will put this in the show notes, you guys. I don't want us to get off on a tangent, yeah. here, but I yeah. you can know what we're yeah. talking about. And so then again, there comes the question of the channeler and the human. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and also the story that much of what she channeled didn't come from her, came from somebody else. You know, there's, there's lots and lots and lots of stuff that she happened to be the fingers on the typewriter, but that, you know, the majority of that came from somewhere else, which feels very accurate to me, actually. Mm. Um, but there have been those stories in my life that have completely cracked me open, that have allowed for new possibilities. And, um, you know, and, and a silly one, I was in the seventh grade, and I read Exodus, and I became a Zionist, you know, I was, mm. I was the only Zionist in Fort Wayne, Indiana at the time. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, my feelings have shifted and 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 my adult life has has altered some things in how I feel about that. But yeah, story has the opportunity to crack you open from what you think you know. And whether it's a film or a TV show or a book, it doesn't matter. It's story. Because I think that studying facts comes into one section of our brain. And story slides in through the limbic system and through the verbal sections of our brain. And that's a very different kind of connectivity in brain science. I think it's much more holistic in terms of brain science, as opposed to prefrontal cortex studying of facts, you know, imprinting those, memorizing those. So I do think that story is the only way to shift paradigm. And I do feel quite honored that I can write stories that do that for people. Um, you know, I've had a number of people reach out to me and, and say, I remembered stuff. I read mm. your book. Mm -hmm. I remembered stuff. I went fabulous. You know, what a great thing that I get to do and create. I mean, I'm writing this series of middle grades books, which I had mentioned, and they are the origin stories of all of the 13 from Sisters of the Solstice Moon, because you don't get to spend a lot of time with them in their home worlds. In that book, they you see them initially and then they leave, they go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So this is each one of those characters as a girl in her home world, what it was like to grow up in that culture and that climate and that landscape with that set of orientations and that set of rituals for the goddess. What was it like? Mm -hmm. And it's so fun. I'm having such a great time. I really get to, you know, just luxuriate in these different worlds that these these girls are living in and explore what was it like to be a girl who became a woman in that environment. Mm -hmm. And it feels that. vital to me that these stories get out into the world because I think we need all the paradigm busting we can get for young people right now. I think people say young girls need to read these and I say and young boys need to read these. Yeah. Uh, young people need to see these stories and have the tops of their heads blown off about what's possible and what's good and what's balanced and and what nurtures all of us. Yeah. So I feel I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission. Mm, I love it. Well, I'm not a middle grader and um, I'm signed up. I'm going to read them. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I did um, send it off to one agent who wrote me back and she said, I love this story, but it feels a little too sophisticated for middle grades. I thought, well, okay, good. Mm. Um, I'm not going to write down to children and I'm not going to write down to tweens and I'm not going to write down to anybody. And um, this also yeah. means that their adults will read these too and find them useful. Yeah, so I think if we can start indoctrinating our children in violence as early as, you know, five, six, seven years old, I mean, they learn very early on that good guys bad guys fighting each other this is introduced to our children very young i speak mm -hmm. from experience watching the stuff that my kids have wanted to watch and stuff so i don't see why and those are sophisticated concepts themselves they are. you know they solving are. problems with violence that's a that is a worldview that you're introducing children to very young so i don't see yeah. why <laughs> taking an alternative perspective is going to be too advanced well also you know i have a tendency to 
uh, use a vocabulary that's perhaps not geared toward fourth graders. Mm. I think kids can look a word up if they don't Absolutely. know a word or they can learn it in context for goodness sakes, they can do that. Um, and, you know, being the, from the cradle raised Catholic that I am, I don't write sex scenes very much. Sex scenes make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> I keep those for my adult books. So there's none of that in these books. You know, they're not raunchy by any stretch of the imagination, but they do stretch a paradigm. They do say these girls are empowered and they get to make their own choices in life about what they become. And they do um, face supernatural challenges. I think that is something that kids can really identify with I felt like I faced supernatural challenges I'm sure you did too mm -hmm. you know before our brains get kind of concretized yeah we face supernatural challenges all the time so yeah that's what's in these they're fun I'm having mm -hmm. a good time um well and I think you know thinking about these books that the two out of the three that I have now read too there's definitely there's in the first book, there's the sense of impending, I mean, doom, it is doom, but there's, there's a lot of hope in the book. I don't want to, you know, make it sound like it's all, but, th but there's a sense of, of something coming that's not good. And there's a further sense of that, uh, you know, in the second book, I think, you know, we're seeing the, the ramifications of what it looks like to live in a patriarchal world. And, and mm -hmm. so, this idea of, um, and you've already re referred to it, you know, conservatism, the backlash of conservatism, we kind of take two steps forward and then three steps back or whatever. I, I wonder your, your thoughts around that. Um, it seems clear to me through the books that you've written that you see a rising of the sacred feminine. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. I certainly feel that as well. Um, and, and how do you see, you know, kind of a pushback against that going hand in hand? And, and how do you feel like you hold that, navigate that? Well, it, you know, and I use this phrase in one of the books that the dying mule kicks the hardest. Mm -hmm. I think that what we are experiencing is the death of patriarchy. I think that the Mayans had it right. That starting in 2012, there's a new epoch of, of divine feminine epoch rising um but i i did study with a mayan elder who said that you know the mayans we we judge our calendar in decades in 10 years and the mayans do it in 20 years and that in the mayan understanding of things there are two units of 20 years for change to really shift from one epoch to the other which means that's 40 years right mm -hmm. so if we start at 2012 and we've gone through 11 years now, well, which we have seen tumultuous shift and backlash against the shift in paradigm. Um, so we got another 30, 29 to go. And I hope I lived through all of that to be able to see us come out the other side. Nothing happens easily. You've given birth. I've given birth. Birthing is painful and terrifying and wonderful and glorious and messy. And that's what's happening now. Um, the world is being birthed anew and the new paradigm is coming out into the light and it is going to be hard and painful and messy. And that doesn't mean it isn't going to be great on the other side. Mm -hmm. Those are my feelings. Yeah. And I think there's a way in which I can hold that. Um, you know, there's sort of a felt sense of that, I, I think, where I can be like, yes. And then if you take into consideration um, everything that's dying around us, so it's not just, you know, if we think about patriarchal systems breaking down and dying, like they're, they're taking with them the life-giving resources that we need to survive. Mm -hmm. That takes it to a whole different level to me like okay are we even going to have clean water access to food access to shelter um mm -hmm. any kind of i'm sure as a chinese medicine practitioner you'd have a good answer to this one but any kind of medical um health support that we would want for ourselves and for our children um I don't know. I'm just wondering how you navigate that. In my tradition, we would say, how do we stay on our surfboard? You know, when all the yeah. waves are like this and this, how, what keeps you on yeah. your surfboard looking at all that? 
I think that the notion that this has all happened before, I mean, I don't think this is new. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I wrote into the end of Sisters of the Solstice Moon, that there is ge geological cataclysm, which we do have evidence for. And that, you know, entire countries, cities, civilizations were washed away, disappeared forever. And that there was hunger and starvation and climate migration and that things got rebuilt. Um, I don't think it's the first time that happened. It probably happened a time or two before that in the history of this planet. So I don't think we're so special that this is the only time this has happened. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to see what comes out the other side. I'm hopeful that the life affirming action will prevail. I do think enormous shifts and changes in all of our decisions have to be made and a lot of people aren't going to make them a lot of people aren't going to shift their understanding of things people are still building houses on the coast of north carolina it's i like, know come on folks you know look at what's happening but you know it's just um some people are going to stay on a surfboard and some people aren't yeah yeah well and and we get perhaps to come back around and try again <laughs> in some other incarnation in some other form be it most likely we all will yeah, yeah. i have great yeah, faith yeah. in that too mm -hmm. yes gina thank you so much this has been so delightful i was not keeping my eye on the time so um i could have kept talking to you but this has been yeah. wonderful thank you it so much really, for your time it was really fun liz thank you it was a great honor to join you on your podcast thanks a lot Yes. And please, everybody check out Gina's series, When She Wakes. It's from Womancraft Publishing. I'm sorry I hadn't had a chance to read the third book yet, because so who knows, maybe I'll have to come back and talk about that one. But definitely go check them out. Um, and and I will and put all leave the and leave reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. Yes, this is so helpful to us writers, especially those of us who are writing not within the um, framework of the big patriarchal capitalist system, you know, that has a giant <laughs> PR machine behind it, your reviews really, really do matter. So that would be amazing. Um, I'll put all that in the show notes, how you can do that too. And then as always, just thank you for listening. I'm so grateful that you're here and you want to listen to these conversations. Um, and if you like the show, you can subscribe to it. You can, you can leave it a review. You can tell your friends about it. You can do all those things. And until next time, take very good care of yourself. And I will speak to you again soon. is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon. 